Father, we thank you that even as the rain waters the earth around us, so your grace daily waters our soul. Uh, We thank you especially for this day, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day of rest and worship, when we come aside from the things of this world and we are reminded and refreshed uh, in our desert journey. Uh, Use this morning and this time to grow us in our love for you, in Christ's name. All right, so, as folks are making their way to their respective classes, could someone, like everyone, open your Bibles to, but someone read for me Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Please, Matthew 7, 1 to 6. So, again, just for the big picture, we're going through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, famous work, The Cost of Discipleship. And The Cost of Discipleship itself is an extended series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so as I'm pointing out things that I, uh, that I believe are fatal flaws in, in Bonhoeffer's uh, uh understanding of the Word of God, I'm doing it because I think he brings some really valuable insights to it. And I'll go ahead and put this up front. In this chapter, and and so I want you to think as we're going through this passage, and Bonhoeffer takes this principle of judge not that you be not judged, and he absolutizes it. We are never to judge anyone. Okay, that's the, I'm about to end up there, but that's the end of the Sunday school lesson, (laughs) is where he ends up. We are never to judge anyone. And the grounds on which he says we are never to judge anyone is what is known as universalism. And that is that everyone is saved. And that's the fatal flaw of neo-orthodoxy and of liberalism, is universalism. Karl Barth was a universalist. He's not anymore. Uh, And so was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Universalism is the idea that everybody everywhere is going to heaven. Uh, That Jesus paid for everybody's sins everywhere, and that everybody everywhere will end up saved. And even if they don't, at some point in the afterlife, they can be saved again. C.S. Lewis uh, held to a version of this, uh, of, of 
he, he called it uh, hypothetic universalism. <laughs> I still love C.S. Lewis. I, I teach C.S. Lewis. I, write, I read everything uh, C.S. Lewis-y. And, and I still love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So when you hear these commands, I want you to not think of them with the obvious uh, question in the back of your mind, because it certainly sounds like since within 18 months of writing this book, Bonhoeffer has joined the Abwehr and is part of an assassination plot against Adolf Hitler. I think Bonhoeffer felt qualified to judge him. <laughs> so clearly this absolutization that you're going to hear, Bonhoeffer himself did not believe applied in his situation. Now, as we've already discussed, the reason is because of Bonhoeffer's understanding of the word. For Bonhoeffer, the word is whatever experience I get from reading the scriptures. And whenever you hear, listen for the word of God, listen for God to speak to you, then it's a subtle question, and the neo-Orthodox guys used it a lot, to, to question the authority of the scripture. Someone could say, well, that's just not God's word to me. Or that's just not God's word to our day and time. The, the scripture is a record of people to whom God's word came. And, and this is their record of what happened with their encounter with God. And it produced this thing. So the scriptures are not equal to, exclusively identical to God's word for us. That's getting off track. And I think that's why this is a good chapter. I think that's why Bonhoeffer, what he says here is a good chapter. I appreciate your bringing us back to that because the reason I still want to look at Bonhoeffer is because he does say a lot of really good things. And the fact of the matter is 99.99999% of the time, who are you and I judging? Each other. <laughs> are we not? <laughs> so let's eliminate the whole universalism thing, and let's just say Bonhoeffer's speaking to the church, okay? <laughs> so I've identified the fatal flaw in this chapter. I've also hopefully given the reason why I think this is a worthwhile study while chewing up way too much time on it. So, is that, so, so I think there are good things that Bonhoeffer says here. Um, and, and it's interesting, as we look at this progression from chapter 5, chapter 5, uh, this is the city on a hill, light uh, before others. It, it's our public outward Christian discipleship, outward discipleship. Chapter 6 is uh, don't pray in public like the hypocrites do. Go to your, to your closet, your father who sees you, etc., this is the inner life. And now in chapter 7, this outward and the inner is in conflict. 
with the world. And that's going to be the theme for all of chapter 7, is this idea of how we live in the place of conflict. We'll be, we'll be picking up these themes later as we continue through the, the chapter. But it's interesting that this whole chapter on conflict begins with this warning not to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. And so by starting with this warning, you see this, the, the danger of what Bonhoeffer, and this is why I also think it's relevant to our day. This is why I'm wasting your time with all this. How many of you are familiar with the term cancel culture? It is the idea that if anyone at any time today or in history ever held a view that was wicked, evil, or sinful, that they should be publicly called out, that they should be destroyed in terms of their reputation, often in terms of their careers, that it happens today, people get canceled. Uh, Anyway, there's an... There's an underlying desire for justice in cancel culture, right? There's an underlying desire to see what is right prevail. That's the the underlying desire behind, quote-unquote, cancel culture, is the idea to call out sin when we see it and to, to say this is sin, this is wicked, and this should be, this person should be, quote unquote, outed or whatever. And people do horrible things. People do terrible, horrible things in public. But there's always been sort of an underlying dis-ease, I think generally, with the idea of cancel culture. And that is that there seems to be difficulty with grace and redemption. You, you don't, you don't get a, a, a real sense of, I'm a fellow person too, also, as well. It, it's, it's an otherness that we do when we judge. When we, when we judge, and I think it's particularly poisonous uh, because of the disembodied nature, we will say things about another person online that I hope we would never say to their face, <laughs> including wishing things upon them that, that I would hope that we are civil human beings that would never say if we were sitting directly across from someone and actually engaging with them. Uh, There's just not a lot of grace, and we, we become disembodied. And Bonhoeffer says this is not just, I mean, he he lives way before social media. He lives way before Twitter or any of that. This is a problem of judgment. This is a problem of what happens when we judge. When we judge, so, so we are going to be living in conflict with the world, but when we judge, we are setting forth a righteousness. That's, that's what judgment is, right? I judge according to a standard. It may be my standard, it may be God's word, it may be, it may be whatever, uh, maybe what I ate this morning, and I've got a migraine, and you spoke too loudly. That's my standard. (laughs) So I'm going to (laughs) yell. I judge by a standard. Uh, And the problem is that when we put 
this judgment upon ourselves, or when we put this judgment against one another, Jesus says, the sword where, or I'm, I'm sorry, Bonhoeffer says this about uh, what judgment you judge. He says, the sword wherewith the disciples judge will fall upon their own heads. Instead of cutting themselves off from their brother, they find themselves cut off from Jesus. And the question's why? How does a sincere desire to stand up for what is right and to speak against what is wrong, how does that desire to see justice prevail? How does that righteous desire, how does that desire to see what is good prevail, how does that alienate us from Jesus? It sounds like it should do the opposite, right? It should do the very opposite. It should drive us closer to Jesus. And the secret is in chapter 6. Because if you were here, you remember the hidden righteousness. Who, From whom do we hide our righteousness? Is it from the world? No, because we're to be the light on the hill. Is it from Jesus? No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> we must hide our righteousness from ourselves. And as soon as we start seeing righteousness in ourselves, we start perverting the whole thing, which, ironically, is going to be a central part okay, I'm good, of the sermon today. <laughs> is, is, you know, we got this glorious image of Eden renewed and, and the blessing and the hands raised in benediction and the glory of God, and what's the first thing we do with it? We mess it up. And our righteousness, our righteousness, as much as we try, always messes it up. Because what we're doing is, and this is Bonhoeffer, he says, it is not an improved standard of righteous living that separates a follower of Christ from the unbeliever, but it is Christ himself who stands between them. If you get that, <laughs> then you understand Christian ethics. My problem with the unbeliever is not that they're committing adultery. My problem with the unbeliever is not that they're a racist or a homophobe or a whatever-phobe or a anything. My problem with the unbeliever is that Jesus Christ stands between me and them. Jesus Christ stands between me and them. As soon as I make what stands between me and them anything other than Jesus Christ, then it gets nasty. Bonhoeffer says, Discipleship does not afford us a point of vantage from which to attack others. We come to them with the unconditional offer of fellowship, with the single-mindedness of the love of Jesus. He goes on to say, when we judge other people, we confront them in a spirit of detachment, observing and reflecting, as it were, from the outside. Now tell me, Bonhoeffer didn't understand social media. <laughs> But the love of Christ for the sinner 
in itself is the condemnation of sin. If the disciples make judgments of their own, they set up standards of good and evil. But Jesus Christ is not a standard which I can apply to others. He is judge of myself, revealing even my own virtues to me as something altogether evil. I want you to pause and think about that for a moment. Even revealing my own virtues to me as something altogether evil. At the end of my life, thus far, if I drop dead after this morning service, I think you could honestly write in my obituary that I was a faithful husband. Do I look at myself and stand before you and say, as I look back on the last 30 years of my life, I see glowing faithfulness? (laughs) Any man who's been married for any length of time, (laughs) who is honest, is going to look back on his life and just go, even my righteousness, I've done a glorious thing. I kept it zipped. (laughs) For 30 years. Whoa. (laughs) That's a pretty low bar. And yet it's a low bar that there are far too many men that fall under. It's a low bar, but I've maintained that bar. And that should make me feel righteous. But I look at 30 years and I see all the times I failed. I see all the times I was ugly to my bride. I see all the... My own virtues are evil. When I look at Christ, forget my evil, and there's plenty of evil, (laughs) but my own virtues. Judgment is the forbidden objectivization of the other person, which destroys single-minded love. Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace of which others are entitled to, just as we are. And then he really gets to the heart of what the opening hook was, which is cancel culture. He says, if we are on the lookout for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves. Assuming by implication that the word of God applies to ourselves in one way and to others in another. (laughs) And the, the understatement of the 20th century. All this is highly dangerous and misleading. (laughs) But if you get that, and, and certainly speaking to the bride, Speaking of one another, because frankly, 99.99999% of, of our judging is with one another. That's where judge not that you be not judged is broken most often in my life. Because I'm not stupid and I don't do it on the internet. I keep it in my head. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> well, I don't do it on the internet. I promise you that. Uh, Yeah, my family might debate whether I keep it in my head or not. Um, Sidetrack. Sorry. Back on track. 
If we're on the lookout for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves, assuming by implication that the word of God applies to ourselves in one way and to others in another. All this is highly dangerous and misleading. And he says the disciple in his new life is as strict, and I love this closing quote, the disciple in his new life is as strict in condemning evil in himself as he was before with others and is as lenient with the evil in others as he was before with himself. There is only one judgment, one law, and one grace. Now, I love that for the church. This is the same guy who turns around and tries to knock off Hitler. So, I do think that for us, boots on the ground, this is a very appropriate reminder (laughs) that there is only one. Because that is the New Testament. I mean, that's what Paul says all the time. Uh, Romans 13 and 14 and and all of those things. But... uh, the, 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 the challenge to us as we pursue righteousness is not pursuing righteousness, it's pursuing Christ. And if we're pursuing Christ, righteousness is the fruit. <laughs> pursuing righteousness, then it becomes super, super toxic, super quick. And uh, so that's what Bonhoeffer continues to call us back to. He is judge. Well, I I think, like a lot of things, we get hung up on the theoreticals, whereas in the practical, it has a lot more to do with how I speak to my wife and my children and my neighbor and my (laughs) my fellow brother and sister. And I said, he absolutizes it. He, He absolutizes it. And there are certainly times when uh, both I will and I have. Uh, not on slapping babies or whatever, but <laughs> there are times that I both will and have. Bonhoeffer's not my God, but he does remind me to look to Jesus. And for that, I appreciate him. <laughs> that, that's right, from the heart, from the heart. Where's your heart? Okay, well, let me... Uh, close us so that we can go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do pray that 
our own righteousness would remain hidden from ourselves, that Christ's face may be the only thing we see. And that as we see the face of our Christ, we would be as lenient with the speck in our brother's eye as we desire him to be with the log in our own. And we would be as strict with the log in our own eye as we would desire our brother to be with the speck. Uh, We pray in Christ's name.